Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. We're still live at Microsoft Build, and I'm talking to Jessica Dean. Jessica, do you want to say hi and introduce yourself? I sure do. Hi, my name is Jessica Dean, and I'm a senior cloud advocate at Microsoft. Excited to be here at Build and on the podcast. Very cool. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Now, uh, have you worked with my friend John Papa? I have. Uh, I do not work necessarily on his team, but I've worked with John Papa and then John Papa's younger brother, Burke Holland. Little okay. known fact. <laughs> they both have the, the hair thing yep. going on. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've talked to both of them. In fact, I remember when uh, John hired Burke over there from Progress, I think. Yeah, one of those companies. Yeah. I remember Burke telling me his uh, his life story and how he came over, but mm-hmm. I don't remember the details. Just remember the conversation and drinks. Yeah, yeah we've we've talked to Burke and John both on the show, and uh, John's been a co-host on several of the other shows that we put together. So wonderful, very cool. So you are a uh, cloud developer advocate. Uh, what exactly does that entail? So it pretty much means first and foremost is I am an engineer, uh-huh. but I also love. I guess, connecting with members of the community. So I always joke, but I guess it's not a joke, saying that I have the best job in the world mm-hmm. because I get to code and then I get to hang out with other people who love to code right. <laughs> for a living. Like, I mean, you really can't get much better. But it also means that I advocate on behalf of the developer. Right. So I want to meet you where you are, help you succeed. If there's a roadblock or a pain point, I want to know about it. I'm fortunate enough to have a really great relationship with a lot of engineering teams in Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of take that communication back and be a liaison. And then we can kind of showcase how you can do certain things. And my particular focus, aside from just being a developer advocate, is actually focusing on Linux, open source technologies, infrastructure, containers, Kubernetes, Mm -hmm. and then DevOps. So I like to think I'm also kind of in a unique position because I can work with JavaScript teams and Java teams and Node teams and ultimately have the same result in trying to accelerate success. That makes sense. And we've we've talked a bit about uh, containers and DevOps and a lot of these things on JavaScript Jabber. It's interesting because when we cover those shows, it's not always a topic that is specific to JavaScript, right? Right. But it's a concern that everybody has, mm-hmm. and it's something that people are trying to learn. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's always interesting to dive in and go, oh, okay, so what can I do now? And how can typically people are asking me, okay, you, you got to ask them how to make it less painful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's when it comes down to the world of containers right now, that is a big theme is how do I make this more accessible, mm-hmm. less painful, and just easier in general all the way around. And I think the first place is is really recognizing no matter what kind of developer you are, whether right. it's C Sharp, .NET, .NET Core, JavaScript, whatever you're coming from, when it comes into the world of containers, from an outside perspective, 
containers or Kubernetes or whatever orchestrator you're using mm -hmm. doesn't actually care about what language your application is. Right. That's you as the developer to kind of know the intricacies of what's involved mm -hmm. and you can streamline and work with your ops team and work on your DevOps team to help kind of set up that Docker file and maybe your Helm or Kubernetes kind of Kubernetes manifest, Helm charts with the things that are specific to your application. Right. But once you have the wrapper that is around it, essentially your Docker file or your manifest, it doesn't matter that it's JavaScript. It right. doesn't matter that it's .NET Core because it's a beautiful thing about containers. Right. Once it's an encapsulated runtime, it's going to work the same and it doesn't matter what's running inside of it. So is the first step then to getting started with something like this? Let's say that somebody's listening and they have a, a Node Express application, you know, run some front end, you know, Angular, React or something. And they're thinking, okay, well, this all sounds really nice. How do I kind of get the ball rolling with this? I mean, is your first step to create that container definition or do you typically approach it from some other angle? So it depends. I mean, the first step, if you want to get it in a container, you're going to need essentially a definition right. that helps you get it into an image format. Mm -hmm. The most popular and widely used one is a Docker file right. format that will essentially create an image and then you run that image in a container. So there's a few different tools you can use that will help you create a basic scaffold or like architecture, uh -huh. uh, I guess a wireframe is a better way of putting it, for you to work with in your code. And it'll create you a basic structure of a Docker file. There's the Docker extension that you can install into VS Code, if you use mm -hmm. VS Code as your IDE. Uh, and then right from the extension, you can actually create a Docker file. Right. You tell it what language you're using, whether it's JavaScript mm -hmm. or whatever. And then it gives you the basic structure. Now, it's up to you to fill in if you want a base image, if you need Node Express or you need an right. Angular base image, if you need to update that to right. rather than just standard Node. It's up to you to update the container ports that your application serves and listens mm -hmm. on. Maybe it's 3,000 or 5,000. It's up to you to do that. If there's any security information that's needed, if you're using an artifact repository and you have a definition file for NuGet packages or whatever, right. it's up to you to kind of modify. But it'll give you a Docker file that will work, and then you can adjust and tweak accordingly. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing is, is then right from, again, VS Code using that extension, you can run it. Or if you also wanted to kind of stream that even further and get that over ready for Kubernetes, we have other tools like Draft, which will create you Helm templates and Docker files, mm -hmm. and it'll help you adjust those even more. And even more cool is we actually have resources available on Microsoft's site and then even on my personal blog where you try to show how accessible this is right. and how it's not specific to language. It's, it's independent. Mm -hmm. So when, when you're setting up the container and let's say that you pull in a base a node and express, uh, you know, Docker setup mm -hmm. or container definition. I, I don't, I don't know what the exact term is, but so you pull that in and then if I need to modify it, what do I do? Just give it a list of commands to run in order to set it up or. So the basic structure will kind of already have the basic commands. It's going right. to say from this image, that's going to be your structure. Mm -hmm. It's going to say, add these files or copy these files. Okay. So it's going to start with whatever working directory you're in. That's uh -huh. going to be your Docker context. And that's typically where your source control files are. Right. And most commonly is you'll store that Docker file mm -hmm. at the root of your directory of your source control. Right. So typically when somebody's just getting started out, they'll do copy period and it'll go over to user source app or something. Mm -hmm. It'll go over to a, a directory in the container. Right. But that's going to copy everything in that root directory and then it'll just work right from root. Right. So they'll already have the basic structure typically, especially if your setup is pretty simple and you don't have external artifact repositories and you're just really, my application is Express and it serves on 3000. Mm -hmm. You update the base image, though 
most of the time express is included in the base right. node so you don't have to you'll probably just update the um port mm -hmm. and then it's ready to run right so it, it's it's very simple so then i just tell it pull my app in do an npm install and go yeah, and you don't even have to say pull my app in because that copy line in the Docker file is already doing that for oh, you. Oh, okay. The, the command at the very end of the Docker file is typically going to be a CMD or an entry point. Uh -huh. And the entry point will either hop into a script that executes something or the command will run the command that the container essentially is needed to start your app. Okay. So that part is already set up. Let's say that it the default that it gives you is um, npm star index.js. Uh -huh. But you know your application is sorcery.js or whatever right. it is, you'd update the name of that file. And so you kind of tweak those minor things mm -hmm. that are specific. But for the most part, everything else is already done for you. Okay. And that's both in VS Code and in Draft. It just really kind of depends on the, the tooling. Mm -hmm. The VS Code built-in extension is really nice, but it does just a Docker file. If you wanted to kind of streamline it for like a cloud orchestrator like Kubernetes, mm -hmm. Draft is really great, but okay. you can use them in the integrated terminal in VS Code. Okay. And there's videos kind of walking you through that. But I think that the first place, aside from starting with a Docker file, is also recognizing that once you have that in a container, it no longer matters that it's JavaScript. It's in the container and right. the base image is what sets that up. So I think so many times developers get caught up of... I learned about containers, but it was for Java. This doesn't apply to me because I'm .NET, right. because I'm JavaScript. But it's still containers, and it doesn't matter. It's right. what you put in the container. The orchestrator doesn't care what's inside of it. It's going to run the container. That makes sense. It's kind of like, so I, I own a number of cars, and I like to work on my cars. You know, I use the same wrenches, the same, you yeah. know, the same tools, right? Mm -hmm. I have to go to the auto parts store, and I have to get specialized parts, if it's a Ford or if it's a Dodge or whatever, right? And so what you're saying is, is hey, look, you're going to use the same tools, yeah. right? And then, yeah, you may have to go get the Ford parts or the, you know, or the JavaScript parts or yeah. the Java parts or the Ruby parts or the Go parts or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And that's really, I mean, that comes down to like the base image or the parts would mm -hmm. be anything that's specific to your environment right. that's required for your application to run. But most commonly, every application, no matter what language it's written in, is going to, assuming it's a front end, is going to serve on some sort of port. Right. And so you're going to have to update an ex that exposed port of mm -hmm. making it available for the container. That's universal. The things that are going to be specific to JavaScript is going to be, again, typically base image, any additional commands you need to run, scripts mm -hmm. that you have that are prerequisites to your right. start command. But other than that, it's, it's, it's simple when you kind of remove the mental complexity from it. Right. And it, it sounds like this is pretty easy to approach. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they just kind of chalk it up as, oh, well, this is going to have the same learning curve as, you know, whatever other technology I have. And, you know, without realizing that, hey, this is a relatively simple tool. Yeah. And you basically just give it a specification and it does the work. It, I mean, that's pretty much it. And uh, one of the easiest ways, if you are going to use like a, the Docker extension in VS Code, is you then can just Docker build and Docker mm -hmm. run. Right. Now, if you wanted to get that running... Let's and it'll say, run on my machine? It'll run on your machine locally. Now, if you wanted to take that same kind of workflow process... Docker file, Docker build, Docker run, but mm -hmm. do that in the cloud. That's where something like Azure Container Instances comes in, which is right. actually on the back end Kubernetes, mm -hmm. but we don't overwhelm you with any of the manifest or Helm charts or right. even agent pools or anything mm -hmm. that, that sounds crazy. Essentially, ACI or Azure Container Instances is Docker run in the cloud. So as long as you give it an image, you just run that image that you have on your system, you put it somewhere that it can publicly access, and then you run it. 
Like mm-hmm. that's so there are very easy workflows, and we also have um, a great resource is Microsoft.com forward slash learn. Uh-huh. There's learning platforms that will actually walk you through how to do this step by step. Aside from tons of sessions here at Build, uh, videos that are being right. recorded, YouTube content that already exists, Channel Nine has a ton of content. But we really are trying to make it as simple as possible. And I think the first step is to really discard the mental complexity or mm-hmm. bias that we have, where it's kind of this is new and I'm automatically scared. Right. Well, the other thing is, is that at least for me, I've been doing software development for long enough that deployment used to be, okay, I have to log into the server, I have to run all the right scripts, I have to get all the right stuff installed, Mm -hmm. and then I have to pull my app over, and then I have to run that and Mm -hmm. hope that everything goes okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I kind of got into um, software from IT. So for me, it's not as scary, but for a lot of people, they get in and it's just like, you know, this is way beyond the realm of what I've learned. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they, they kind of attribute a lot of that complexity to whatever the current state of the art is. Absolutely. And along those same lines, so you mentioned you had a background in IT and then you got into software development, Mm -hmm. which probably also makes sense as to why they trusted you to log into the server and and copy (laughs) over your own dev uh, dev application. Some of my jobs, yes. (laughs) But I mean, the other side of the, the table or the other side of the wall from the operations perspective is they're also having to do things that previously or traditionally were out of scope from their job description, right. right? Now infrastructure operations engineers are having to deal with code, which mm-hmm. was not something that they were used to, right? They would right. deal with actual infrastructure on maybe a physical level. They yeah. they maybe have a few batch scripts or like Jira wiki kind of like articles, Atlassian mm-hmm. things like that they're sitting there looking at, okay, so I go and do this and follow this step and they're doing manual processes. Oh, we, we got fancy um, when I was working IT. It would do a Nick boot. Oh. So it would boot over the network. Yep. And so it would essentially, we'd have the media in the machine, right? Mm-hmm. So the CD was sitting in the drive but yeah, then it would go over the network and it would pull down the scripts that it had to run in order to do the, up, you know. Yep, in order to do everything. But it's, <laughs> from, from an IT perspective, the mindset is also changing. Yeah. So developers are having to do things that is a little bit outside their comfort zone. Right. But so are operations engineers, yeah. which really drives home the value of that, that DevOps kind of culture and mindset mm-hmm. of making sure we're really kind of working together to lessen those pain point areas or the painful areas. But I mean, that's just really kind of the nature, right? Like things are kind of shifting, but when we do kind of take anything that we were doing in the past kind of out of it and realize Mm -hmm. here's where we are today, here's the present and here's kind of the direction in the future. How can we continue just with this momentum without remembering in the past? Like things were painful still in the past and they were all, I mean, they would take what, two weeks to go do sometimes like a rollout or just Mm -hmm. to do an upgrade across (laughs) 20 systems. You're having to run around with your floppy disk and your like USB stick or your zip disk. And then, I mean, the other part from a developer is the developer tests everything. It works. You give your zip file over to your ops person or in your case, you have the keys and you go install it. Well, my last job wasn't that way and we were dealing with government data. So I, if I looked at the server, I was in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> right? Don't look. It's it, bird box in here. I'm yeah. not seeing it. Yeah. But once you take that and you run it on the server, you, there's no way of telling that that uh-huh. server environment is set up the same way that your dev system was. Right. Or that dev is still in alignment with mm-hmm. QA and with prod. Yeah. What if somebody accidentally, because humans, I mean, we make mistakes, mm-hmm. no, no developer engineer is perfect. What if somebody updated the, I don't know, NuGet that was installed right. on there, a version of Node or mm-hmm. something in the runtime environment changed. Right. And that's the beauty of containers is because it's immutable and it's portable. 
no matter where it is, it's going to run the same way. Right. So it solves a lot of the complexity problems while maybe just also because it is a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, more of the apprehension. I think as humans, we're, we're prone to maybe be a little bit more apprehensive of something we're right. unfamiliar with. So I, I kind of want to get back to some of the practical stuff around yeah. containers. So let's say that I get my app and I containerize it. I, you know, I get it so it runs in a Docker container and it runs great on my machine. But now I want to do things like, and I keep hearing, uh, you know, continuous integration, continuous uh, deployment. Yeah. And I do that with my apps, but I, I use a system that, you know, checks the code out and runs the tests. And if I have it in a container, I hear that that makes it easier or more... It depends on how you want to structure it. I mean, you can still run your test. You can run the, mm-hmm. pardon me, you can still run the tests. You can run the test in the container itself. Right. So that can just become one of the f- modifications that you make mm-hmm. in your Docker file. That, that sounds ideal if that's the way it's running anyway, right? The app is running? It can be. Some of the things that people then run into is, okay, well, let's say that I want to get my code coverage. I want to get my test results. Mm-hmm. Now you have to find a way to export that out, right, of the container. out of the container. So you can do that by mounting a volume. You mm-hmm. can do that through like some Docker CP magic, which is where right. you copy from a container. Container, I usually recommend mounting a volume, or you can actually run some of the testing on your code prior to building the Docker image. So you can okay. do that as part of your pipeline. Right. A lot of that is going to be personal preference. Mm-hmm. As long as you're still doing your testing and you're able to have your code coverage results available in your CI as part of your build verification and your unit tests that's visible and attached mm-hmm. to each build, you're going to be fine. So I could conceivably run my unit tests by just checking out the code like I currently do yeah. and then do my end-to-end test by standing up container and throwing requests at it. Absolutely. And that, I mean, I, so that would probably be if you're going to actually stand up the container and test it as prior to it getting to production, but right. that's it running. Mm-hmm. That probably would happen more of like your continuous deployment stage right. because you're testing the release. Mm-hmm. Testing the actual code or the build is making sure that your application can build, can compile, and can right. start, and that would happen in your build. Okay. So the same way that you're doing your, your process, you can think of it the same, it's going to be the same in container it's just a matter of kind of where you plug that in mm-hmm. but the flow and the same process you go through doesn't change right. it's just kind of the tools that you're using has kind of been more modernized mm-hmm. the other way to kind of think of a docker file is you mentioned you previously you would just run all these different scripts and commands uh-huh all you're having the Docker file do is automate those commands, right. which is similar to, again, a CICD pipeline, mm-hmm. is you're kind of automating the tasks that it takes you to go from source control, check-in, and your push, mm-hmm. all the way over to ultimately running code, running code and delivering value to customers. Right. That makes sense. So I get it through CICD, or maybe I'm just you know a maverick, and I'm like, okay, I've got to run a container go, right? And I just push it up. Yeah. I mean, is that it for deployment? Just, you know, handing it off to some cluster like Azure or Google Cloud Platform or AWS or some Kubernetes thing that I set up on my own? From a developer perspective, that's pretty much it for deployment. Um, I mean, your operations engineer or someone else on your um, DevOps team may focus a little bit more on some of the networking, load balancers, Mm -hmm. services, database connections or storage connections that happen outside of that. But from a developer, you care about connecting, Uh essentially pushing your code over to your Git repository or whatever kind of repository you're using, and then having your pipeline go through and take the code out. Right. But if you have the tools in place where you've already tested everything, it's already working locally in a container, it's working locally outside of a container, Mm -hmm. your code is passing as far as your code coverage, you're done. And there's now no longer the email or the angry phone call of, you gave me code that doesn't work. Right. So it, it actually does streamline and smooth the process quite significantly. And then once it's running on Kubernetes, I mean, especially when it's running in production, it's, it's done. It's out there. It's being consumed. 
that makes sense. And then Kubernetes is going to take care of like some of the scale, the horizontal scaling, mm -hmm. the, I mean, it's, it's going to actually be able to handle any of the CPU utilization or resources. That's one of the nice things about Kubernetes is it is elastic and it is modular right. and expandable. Hey, are you working on a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full-stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. So let's say that I am the lucky guy that is the IT guy and the developer. Mm -hmm. Jack my, of all trades. Yeah, right. Run. Absolutely. <laughs> I've been that too. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm actually working on an app right now where I have some developers working with me mm -hmm. and I hired them because I know how to get work from them, right? Of course. And then, yeah, I've been trying to figure out this other stuff on my own. And I keep looking at Kubernetes and going, that looks really nice, but I don't really know where to start beyond, oh, well, I can probably get a Docker container up on my own. But then, okay, when do I need to pull in the load balancer? When do I need to pull in some of these other resources? I keep getting told, don't run your database in a Docker container. So what do I do there? So everyone has a different opinion. Uh, some people do like running databases within uh, Kubernetes, which is running in a container. I'm still of the mindset where there are services that are created to do things very well. And there right. are services that can do other things, but they just do them. They're not designed and specifically and intentionally for them. Right. So I prefer to run databases in something that's uh, geo-redundant, globally scalable, already has backup redundancy. Right. I pretty much want to run my database in a database as a service format. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way kind of about storage and I can mount my storage, whether it's NFS right. or whatever, over into Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. I can connect my database over to my Kubernetes deployments. Okay. So that's my preference and that's my belief. Uh, and that's usually based on, again, if you really care about your database IOs and your processing mm -hmm. and the timing, to me, that's I've seen better performance that way. So in that, you can still structure and connect Kubernetes to your external services. Right. You don't have to rely on everything mm -hmm. internally. Some people also want to always attach a load balancer to every single service that they have that's front-facing in Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that. Coming from an IT and operations perspective, especially from a Linux world, previously we had proxies. We had yep. virtual hosts. We had our comp files that we had essentially one server come in, mm -hmm. and it handled the routing of the traffic. Right. You can still easily do that with a proxy manager on Kubernetes. In fact, oh, interesting. I advocate that in nearly every session. If you're using Azure Kubernetes service, we have a plugin that you can enable at the deployment of your AKS cluster. Mm -hmm. It's called HTTP application routing. It would be the equivalent of an Nginx proxy. Right. I'm more old school, so I still choose to use an Nginx proxy. <laughs> and it's just as simple as deploying Nginx yeah. on your Kubernetes cluster. Right. There's a lot as far as how to get started. There's a lot of videos and content that does exist. I've been really big in the community about making accessible content. In fact, I have a video on YouTube and in my blog. It's only 17 minutes, and it will walk you through a completely bare Kubernetes cluster, ultimately getting Nginx proxy set up, mm -hmm. complete with an auto-issuer of Let's Encrypt TLS certificates. Nice. So every time you deploy a pod, it'll automatically provision a 
production ready as a sell certificate from Let's Encrypt. Oh, nice. So that also takes from operations, mm -hmm. that takes one of the manual steps we had to go do where you had to go right. fill out a request form and a purchase order and grab all this stuff and mm -hmm. wait a few days. And 72 hours later, we maybe have an approval. And then you deploy the next day and do it exactly. again. Exactly. And this <laughs> does it, I mean, I literally go from end to end. It does right. it in 17 minutes of a complete deployment. And you don't have to go and edit your virtual host and comp files and all this stuff. Right. So video content exists. As far as truly getting started completely without not anything, mm -hmm. there's also the DevOps project on Azure. Right. So if you don't have any architecture, any infrastructure, mm -hmm. you don't have a Kubernetes cluster, you don't have a pipeline that can do these tasks because you don't know where to start. Right. You go out and create a DevOps project, and it's four steps. You choose your language. You choose your framework. You choose the service you want, which would be AKS in this case. Right. And then you give it name and data. And that's essentially it. And it will go out and provision everything you need, including a pipeline. And one of the benefits of that is the sample application that it gives you also gives you sample Kubernetes manifest files right. that has application insights attached over to it. So it'll actually be able to give you insight into your application running in your pod, which oh, wow. helps you gauge if you're if your pod is actually mm -hmm. doing what you intend to do, right. which, which I'm assuming is deliver value of some sort to who's ever consuming it. That makes sense. So there's there's a ton of different resources. I almost feel like people who say, well, I don't know where to start because there's not enough information. I'm on the other side of the belief where I feel like there's too much information and it's overwhelming. Yes. So I usually say start from what do you need? Do you not have anything? Start with the DevOps project mm -hmm. and then kind of start from there. Start with Microsoft Learn. Start following people on Twitter. Maybe go find content from different clouds. No, right. I mean, uh, there's tons of developer advocates that can help you with different resources and all of them are valuable. Right. So there's, there's information out mm -hmm. there, but I would say start from at least having something that can help you get a pipeline and the infrastructure and then start playing with that. Right. That makes sense. And if, you, if folks are wondering about the DevOps project that you're talking about, we did talk to Donovan Brown yes. at Microsoft Ignite in November when they announced Mike or Azure DevOps. And so... Azure DevOps is awesome. And then Azure DevOps projects, the, the integration is really great. Uh, now that Donovan Brown and his keynote, he also did the unified pipelines mm -hmm. that you can do with Azure DevOps. Uh, so that'll actually have completely in YAML, starting from your build to your dev, to your production stage. In fact, one of the sessions at build, it, it's uh, going on right now. I believe it's going to be ending in about 10 minutes. But it's about an end-to-end -end experience with development in microservice architecture for DevOps and Kubernetes. Uh, and it actually takes a more real-world approach in the sense of having multiple applications, mm -hmm. multiple containers, multiple branches or repos, right. having your pipelines in that and how to ultimately deploy that. So there's a ton of, and all the content I believe is going to be recorded. And I was going to say, I might have to go look at that one. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, I was actually, I, was, I really wanted to, to watch the session, but I also really wanted to be on the podcast. So right. got a time balance. Yep. They told you to be here. We appreciate it. Oh, I, I love it. And yeah. I mean, because the content's available online, I can always yeah. go and watch it too. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the great things about conferences in general is that you get to meet awesome people yeah. and then you can go back and watch the videos of the show, the, the ones you missed. A lot of the conferences is really more about the networking for me. Yeah. I'll go and I, I learn at every single conference no matter right. what, because I don't know everything. And I, I learn something new every single day. Sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like it's every single minute, but I, I, I do the same thing everyone else does. I go and watch the videos. Yeah. So one other thing I keep hearing about Kubernetes is that you can set up some kind of auto scaling. You can. So you can do an auto scaling uh, within Kubernetes to also scale out your actual deployment and mm -hmm. your pods. So if you have three based on CPU or memory utilization, automatically scale up to 10 and then scale down when the load right. falls. And then you can also do scaling from your actual Kubernetes uh, 
essentially cluster, your your mm-hmm. agent pool, you can right. also scale automatically from or horizontally scale out from three nodes to 10. And right. yeah, so scaling is built in and is officially supported. I forget the version of Kubernetes that that officially became mm-hmm. supported, but um, that's another benefit is there's scaling built into it. There's load balancing built right into it, as we've talked about. There's secret management if you have to securely store secrets and data. Right. There's so many wonderful features, and a lot of those features kind of go back to being built on DevOps practices. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that really is a foundation for why it is so valuable in today's era. Right. I think you've pretty well convinced me that this is something that at least I need to learn or hire somebody else to learn, depending <laughs> on what I'm doing, right? Right. So what's the learning curve on this? Because I feel like, you know, as the more we talk, I'm like, okay, so these, you know, it's going to take me a day or two if I really, you know, want to learn it to just sit down and learn it. And then some of this, um, I'm just going, okay, so that's a hill to climb. <laughs> it depends really on kind of where you're at in your I guess, knowledge base. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially if you are coming straight from a developer perspective, some of the concepts of networking and load balancing and proxies are going to be completely foreign. So that's going to be that mountain that you're going to kind of have to learn a little bit on how, what layer four is, what layer seven is. I'm not saying you have Mm -hmm. to have an understanding of OCI layer, but you have to understand like where your application typically serves, which is usually layer seven and Mm -hmm. how that works with, um, not usually, but how that works with your proxies, how that works with your routing, Mm -hmm. because some of that is going to be involved in Kubernetes. But when you kind of watch some of the videos and some of the content that exists to help you get started, you realize that some of these are really just you're deploying this networking content, essentially, in code. So Mm -hmm. because you are a developer, if you kind of look at it from, okay, what is this code doing? It'll start kind of making sense, but it does take a certain amount of patience. On the other side of it, if you're not worrying about like load balancers or services and you're just worried about running your pod in a container, uh-huh. editing your Docker file isn't necessarily going to be as challenging right. because you're just doing the steps that you usually do in your local dev workflow, right? right? You choose whatever you are working with, if it's mm-hmm. Node, Express, Angular, React, and then you choose what files you need where your source lives, essentially, and any other additional commands or scripts you have to run or modifications you have to make, right. and then you run your app. Mm-hmm. Um, so certain things might be easier than others, but I mean, I would argue that's kind of the same thing with anything you learn. Yeah. I mean, when a new version of React or Angular comes out or new features get released and different packages or plugins, like you still have to go and read data and learn kind of how this changes or maybe this const changes over here and mm-hmm. how you have to adjust or modernize older applications for your code base. Right. That makes sense. Do you have any favorite resources for people to go and start working or learning this stuff? I, I mean, I check out YouTube. I there, There's a really popular video. I want to say it was from uh, VMware. It's a five-minute mm-hmm. video. Uh, I think it has close to... A, it might be completely way off, but I feel like it has close to a million views. And it's explaining Docker and Kubernetes in five minutes. Right. So a lot of times what I do, especially when I'm learning something, is I'll go... YouTube stuff and try to search for other people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've said, Microsoft has some really great resources. Uh, the Learn platform is relatively new. We, right. we launched it last summer and it walks people through like tutorials. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the old kind of MVA platform where we could kind of walk through and learn things step by right. step and kind of have like a, a virtual academy kind of thing. But this is more geared towards a personal experience. So that's a really great resource. 
I mean, really, there's there's a lot of content online. I would just kind of mm-hmm. search. Another great resource that I use is Twitter. I start following right. people that I recognize. Maybe I am interested in DevOps or maybe right. I'm interested in Kubernetes. And I'll follow people from all different companies, all different platforms, all different backgrounds, and kind of start learning what resources they post, follow their blogs, follow mm-hmm. their GitHub. Uh, right. I mean, for, for me personally, I tell everybody, every session I do, all the code is always available on my GitHub. Right. It's always open source. You can fork the repos. You can go play with it. I just pretty much say, like go find people and start talking. It's easy to stand there and say, I don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. You won't know how to do it until you go start. Yep. And that's and everyone fails. I To, to build my demo for my session here at Build, mm-hmm. because there was so many new things that were introduced that we were still launching, and a lot, right. of, the, a lot of the documentation wasn't even available to me internally. <laughs> so I'm kind of just going off of my own knowledge base. I failed 100 times to get my unified pipeline working oh, because, wow. because I didn't know things that they had in their documentation that was like on lockdown. So not because it was hard, but because I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that just applies to everyone. Yep. Well, I think that's just in general a good life lesson, right? Is that, you know, you you can complain that you don't know. Yeah. But the only solution that really gets you any headway is going out and doing it. Well, and I guess my one challenge to that, and it might be a little bit more blunt, but you can say you don't know, but what Mm -hmm. have you done to learn? Right. Exactly. No. Yep. Yeah, people complain about what they don't have or what they don't know, but ultimately, yeah, you have to go out and do the work. Yeah. And if you don't, then you're never going to know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's Rome wasn't built in a day, but people needed to go and build it. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. So how do people find you online if they want to follow you and see what you're working on these days? They can follow me at JL Dean. No relation to James Dean. So there's two E's in my name. <laughs> I never know. I Obviously, I'm in the US now. But when I, I travel everywhere and when I'm overseas, I never know if that joke's going to work. But there's two E's in my name. So J-L-D-E-E-N uh, on Twitter, GitHub and Instagram. Uh, certain countries don't use Twitter. So I've tried to make myself accessible to right. all. And then you can always send me an email as well, though I'm mm-hmm. probably more active on Twitter. But it's jessica.dean, again, D-E-E-N, at Microsoft.com. And then my blog is the same, jessicadean.com. Cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take-home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash angular. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, well, we have one more segment of the show that we typically do at the end, and that is picks, which are essentially just shout outs. And, uh, you know, some people pick, tech stuff so you know programming tools and things like that but it really can be anything so if you have a tv show that you're really into i I think the whole world's freaking watching game of thrones for example i've never seen an episode of game of thrones (laughs) in full i should say uh i lived with my cousin for a while when i moved to florida for a year it was a Uh brief stint and they love to watch game of thrones every sunday night but i wasn't ever there consistently and i didn't ever come out consistently so i've seen like 15 20 minutes here and there of random seasons Mm -hmm. i don't know anything 
But as far as tech picks, uh, I just thought of some other resources or, or people, I guess, to learn some of this stuff. Lockie Evanson on Twitter is mm -hmm. somebody that I would shout out. He was, I believe he actually was a contributor to the very first Helm chart, but he's okay. super big and he's actually on the AKS team and he's super big in the Helm Kubernetes Docker community. He has really great videos that he's releasing on Twitter all the time. You can go and follow the CNCF Foundation, Kubernetes handles on Twitter. Those are shout outs. Non-technical shout outs, I guess. I would, uh, I don't really have a TV show that comes to mind. Books. Books, um, video games. I just I just read a book called uh, Shoe Dog about Nike. I am obsessed with Nike and shoes, and it's actually the complete history on how Phil Buck Knight uh, essentially got started, which was quite fascinating because he didn't actually mm -hmm. start Nike until he was 24 or 25, right. and it didn't start as Nike. It started as him being a distributor for the West Coast or on the West Coast for a company that was based in Japan, uh -huh. and he essentially traveled and took a year off and ultimately ended up going to Japan and requesting a meeting and lying to them saying that he owned blue ribbon sports and it was himself working out of his parents' basement, just uh -huh. like every great tech story. But it was a really great story on kind of how he became like right. this mogul. And then I do, I guess more shout outs as I do love the Nike brand. Cause mm -hmm. I wear Jordans pretty much every day. <laughs> nice. I'm wearing my Jordan four white cements right now. I wore the singles day red and uh, gum soles yesterday. So I guess those are my picks is Nike nice. shoes and Kubernetes. <laughs> it's it's funny. I love seeing what people are into because, yeah, you know, some people, they kind of follow the general um, popular culture. And then other people, it's like, I can't tell you why, but I love this soccer team or that, you know, obscure reference, you know, video game that nobody's ever played or, you know. Right, <laughs> so, right. yeah, that's it, fun. I'm going to throw out a few shout outs on my own. So, uh the other day, um, I did a, a podcast interview about Azure Functions. Oh, cool. And we were talking, and, and they mentioned John Papa as well. John is a good friend of mine, and they have a show now. He and Ward Bell and Dan Walleen called Real Talk JavaScript. Oh, cool. Okay. And so if you're looking for, they interview people who have actually built stuff, right? And mm -hmm. so talking to John, I kind of got the impression that the premise of their show is essentially, what have you built and how did you do it? That's awesome. Which is a little different from what we do, where it's, okay, what is this thing and how do I use it? you know, it's theirs. What have you done and how did you build it? And yeah, it's just a way fun show. So if you want to go check that out, um, real talk JavaScript. And then, um, I've been spending a lot of time playing Zelda breath of the wild, which came out a while back and I'm just really, really digging it. The, the Nintendo switch is nice in the sense that I can just, you know, throw it in a bag and take it with me when right. I go on trips. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm going to shout out about that. I think I did that on the last one too. So if it's a duplicate folks, I'm super sorry. Breath of the Wild, though, I do have to say, is pretty epic. I went out and bought a Switch just for that, uh -huh. which is not the first time I've done that because I went out and bought a PlayStation 4 just for Red Dead 2. Oh, wow. And Spider-Man. Well, because Red Dead you can play on Xbox, but mm -hmm. I really wanted both of those games. Though you're right, the Switch is significantly more portable than any other gaming system. Yep. And you can take the epicness of Zelda mm -hmm. everywhere. Yep. And then you just drop it in the dock when you have a, yep. a TV to hook it up to. Yeah. So. And then I grab my Pro Remote and go at it. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it. Do you have any recommendations for people um, coming to build next year as far as like how to navigate the conference or which uh, sessions to look for and things like that? I mean, that's a great question. I, I think for any conference, regardless of if it's build or ignite or just a conference in general is take a look at beyond just the titles, read mm -hmm. the descriptions, 
read if there are any um, kind of description, like deep, deep dive descriptions, any kind of assumptions or technical right. requirements. Look at the title code. A lot of times, like if something is a basic session, it'll say like a hundred level. So it'll mm -hmm. have like a breakout and then like a hundred or right. one in the title. If it has a three or four, it's going to be more advanced. So definitely use that to kind of gauge and navigate. I've delivered three and 400 level content and had people think that it's just a basic level because it, mm -hmm. the title sounds simple, but it's also still more advanced. And then I've had it on the reverse where it's a basic session, but people right. think that it's more advanced and then it wasn't geared that way. And then I've gone to sessions like that. Mm -hmm. So I always have to make sure I take a look at the actual event code or session right. code. And that's a pretty universal concept for, for conferences mm -hmm. of make sure that if you're expecting um, something basic, that you're, you're going to a basic session and kind of structure your schedule around maybe a few basics on one day, a little bit more in immediate on another day, and maybe advanced, mm -hmm. or mark the sessions that you really do like that maybe are advanced and you want to front load your in-person content with like basic, but right. you want to save the advanced ones for maybe a viewing later, especially right. if conferences are recording them. Bookmark those so you can go back and watch them. Cool. Great advice. All right, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you very much, Chuck. All right. We will uh, be back with another session from VIEW uh, next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.